Hello, everybody. This is Mike Van Meter, and welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast. And I want to thank you for joining me, and you can reach us at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible, or our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. And this podcast exists to educate the public about addiction, remove the stigma associated with addiction, and offer help and support to those suffering from addiction. This episode is sponsored by FHE Health, a substance abuse and mental health treatment center specializing in treatment for first responders' needs, including PTSD, anxiety, and substance use. So take the first steps to a better life today by visiting FHEHealth.com. That's FHEHealth.com. And so today, folks, I wanted to introduce you to um, uh, a new friend of mine that I met, uh, Andrew Pierce, who is an addiction therapist, and he has uh, worked in the past in intensive outpatient uh, programs. And um, as you know, I've done a separate podcast on what NIOP is. And he's also done individual therapy and aftercare. And what's most exciting about this is he just recently released a book in June, and it's called uh, Res- Resolving Spiritual Issues in Recovery. And the subtitle is Putting the Universe to Work for You. And how we came across one another is I've, I've talked about this on the podcast before, how I'm working on another graduate degree through the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation, and my degree is in um, addictions and co-occurring disorders, and uh, Andrew is a graduate of this program back in 2017, so we have a lot in common. We have some mutual friends that put us in contact, and here we are today and had a discussion with Andrew last week about um, spiritual issues, and I thought it was interesting, and, and I know that he has a lot of fantastic information that he's going to uh, uh, pass on to you folks. And I know you're going to enjoy this podcast and get a lot out of it. So with that, Andrew, thank you for coming on the program. Hey, Mike, thanks for having me. I'll, I'll give you a, a quick uh, uh, correction. It's resolving spiritual skepticism in recovery. Ah, and resolving spiritual skepticism. Spiritual skepticism. Yeah, in recovery. Yeah, and I, I run into that a lot because, uh, it's it's hard for me to remember. People say, "What's the name of your book?" And I literally have to stop and think. But that's yeah. <laughs> you have to think about the your the, your own name of your no, own I book. No, I do right? seriously. It's like what's it called? It's like oh yeah. <laughs> I worked on it so much. I'm so close, so close to the material. It's like the, the the name just it doesn't even matter anymore. Well, it sounds good. Well, tell us a bit about it, and tell us a well, little bit about yourself as well. Sure. Um, well, I'm I'm a person in long term recovery, uh, which for me means for me that, uh, you know, starting in, uh, I guess, April of April 26, to be specific, of 2014, I haven't had a, uh, a, a alcohol or any drugs. And the benefits of that have been that I've been able to, I guess, maximize my potential, come, come closer to realizing what my potential truly is. Uh, I went to grad school, uh, as, as you are. Uh, probably the best uh, addiction counseling program in the world. People come there from all over the world. I got you know, a 3.85 grade point, which is pretty good for somebody that uh, got through undergrad with D minus minuses. Um, and uh, I run a thriving practice here in southwest Florida and Naples. And it's every day is, is, is an adventure, and I, I love what I do. Well, can you talk to a little bit about how how did you get to this point and why did you choose this degree? And I mean, no, I know a lot of people that come into this degree program are people that uh, are in recovery themselves. That's mm-hmm. you know my case, and I decided that after I retired from my perfect my career, that this is the kind of work that I wanted to do full time, and went out to get 
uh, formally educated on that and then ultimately licensed. Um, is that kind of the path that you took? Oh, definitely. You know, um, the, the first, I, I've always been in finance uh, pretty much most of my uh, adult career after college. I was, uh, I, I mean, I, I should take that back. Probably the last, oh, 15 or 20 years leading up to the time that I got sober, I was in finance. But uh, I've really, somebody accused me of having sort of a Forrest Gump type, type life in the, in the 80s. I did the uh, long hair uh, music scene on the Sunset Strip, playing with guys like Poison and Warrant, and um, you know that was when the the big hair days were going on in the mid '80s. Um, I worked uh, as a for the airlines, which I loved doing. I when I was a kid, I wanted to be a pilot, and I still like work. You know, I still like the airlines. I think that if I could have made a decent living at it, I would have probably been a you know worked for the airlines because uh, I love travel and adventure. And, um, but you know, the, when it came to getting into this line of work, when I got sober, the first couple of years were pretty tough. I mean, I was not one that was, uh, tended to want to reach out to other people. I was self-reliant. I was always entrepreneurial in nature. I ran a couple of music magazines. I had always done things myself. I'd always been my own boss. Um, and so, but when, so when it came time to recovery, which, uh, for better or for worse, requires a certain amount of interdependence. You know, I struggled uh, early on, and so I, I did get accepted to the grad school, and it probably saved my life. This Being in this line of work gives me the depth of human connection that I believe is necessary for a really strong um, you know, recovery. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And... Uh- so what what kind of uh, how long have you been sober? Well, uh, let's see, seven, a little over seven years. It's at the end of April twenty sixth, twenty fourteen. So it's uh, a little over seven years that I've been sober. Now, mind you, um, I was sober for a period of time from age seventeen to age thirty. Uh, I got in some legal trouble when I was a kid, and uh, the judge gave my, me a choice between going to prison for three years for auto theft and taking stolen firearms across state lines, or I could go to treatment. So I thought about it for half a second and said, well, I guess I'll go to treatment. And I I did go to treatment and um, stayed sober for 13 years until my 30th birthday when I gave myself permission to have a nice glass of wine because I got complacent in my recovery. Yeah, it's kind of the beginning of the end, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm, yeah, and I had an 18-year run after that um, used and I left a substantial trail of mayhem behind me as a result yeah i i've talked about that before in this podcast that it's the the first drink that kills you it's it's not you know it's one too many and a hundred is not enough and yeah. it just really re-triggers that that progression of the addiction doesn't it oh it certainly does and you know what i tell folks when people say well how did you how do you stay sober what's the number one tool that you use now and it's just something that i tell myself i, I could put it on a bumper sticker and is that is that i know where that train goes you know, mm-hmm. if i have that one drink i'm going to be all in because why not mhm and we're personalities so, yeah. of extremes mhm yeah uh, and, and that's very very common in um People with addictions, and I something I've noticed, and you know, I haven't read literature on this. It's just something that I've noticed. You know, just sort of being an observer of, 
human nature that mm-hmm. I, there's a lot of artists. You now, it's funny that you mentioned that you're a musician and, you know, you're very involved in the music industry. And um, what a lot of people don't know about me is I actually have a very strong musical background myself. Uh, actually toyed with going into the music industry after after high school. And I have noticed that a lot of people that are in recovery are in the arts and in writing, academia, things like that. It seems to be, you know, people who are very creative and people who really try to excel and go to great lengths to excel. And I think that's just part of our personality and our makeup. Yeah, I think we're highly driven, um, especially toward um, when when – there are unlimited upside prospects, you know, as a musician, if you write a good song and it catches on, poof, you know, instantly you you don't have to worry about working anymore. You get a nice royalty check, you know, regularly. So there's always that element of excitement, I think, dealing with the arts, regardless of whether it's painting or, or songwriting or what have you. And it, plus it's fun. The, the, uh, a lot of people in recovery, if you think about it, have, uh, you know, it, a lot of, have low self-esteem, right? And so the adoration and validation that the external validation that we get feels so good when you're on stage um, that uh, it's very, it's highly addictive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. And so when people get into recovery, that's something to be aware of, isn't it? That, you know, a lot of times people get into the the recovery from the the physical substance, the the chemical substances, and then... Mm -hmm gravitate towards becoming addictive to other things, whether it's love, whether it's gambling, whether it's uh, pornography, you know, the process addictions, um, food, mm-hmm. food actually can be, you know, too much, too little exercise can become an addiction. Mm-hmm. And we just transfer that personality. So it's a basic personality type as well, but we can become exactly. addicted really to anything. Well, yeah. And it's, uh, you know, uh, that you mentioned that, but, you know, when I first, uh, when I quit, using in between ages 17 and 30 uh, during that time I still you know had other I unbeknownst to me because I didn't know about these things uh, you know I basically switched to relationships and um, I probably had looking back I'd, I had like 25 affairs on my first wife before I lost count and so yeah I, I was in recovery from substances and alcohol but it simply shifted it's like whack-a-mole right you, know, you, you get one thing and it pops up in another area unless we really get our head around it um and when i quit uh, seven years ago over the course of the next couple of years i gained 75 pounds before i finally got a handle on that right and so you know without somebody who understands how these things work uh, and that's why aftercare, for instance, is so important when somebody goes to treatment. If they don't have somebody to help them navigate how this addiction can pop up in other areas, gambling, shopping, uh, pornography, you name it, um, you know, they're still going to have trouble attaining what I, I consider to be the end game. The opposite of addiction is an abstinence. The opposite of addiction is the ability to engage in healthy relationships. And whether it's and process addictions, all addictions interfere with that because it involves um, shame and dishonesty and the need to hide the behaviors. But in the end, the only place that love resides is in the context of healthy relationships. And so addiction is addiction. And as long as a person is vulnerable to their addictions and engaging in them, they're not going to be 
I guess what I would call a safe person to love. You know, that's the end game. Mm-hmm. So all of the pathologies, once we get abstinent, abstinence is about 15% of the way along that continuum between active addiction and the ability to engage in healthy relationships. But it's only an abstinence where, for instance, we have one of the minimum requirements uh, for healthy relationships is we have to have accurate access to our emotions so that we can actually relate with people on an emotional level accurately. Um, that's that's the very least that, that we need. But while we're sober also, then we can do all the other work, the other 85% of the work that needs to be done usually to to fully restore our ability to engage in healthy relationships, such as you know, dealing with the shame, dealing with family of origin stuff, dealing with you know, learning what healthy relational dynamics looks like, uh, establishing healthy boundaries, uh, people-pleasing, all these different uh, pathologies that come along with addiction that either preceded it or came afterward or both. Um, you know, they have to be really resolved in order for us to be able to engage in healthy relationships. That's why well, I never understood when I first went to treatment and, you know, they handled, handed me the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, I, and at first I thought, okay, well, this is going to be the blueprint. This is like the user's manual on how to get sober. And when I read the big book, I didn't see a whole lot about drinking or not drinking. It was all about, you know... Uh, taking an inventory, filling that spiritual void, uh, mm-hmm. you know, turning, you know, powerlessness, turning my life over to a power greater than myself, do, you know, taking those inventories, um, making lists of, of amends. And, and I, I just, I didn't understand that at first. I didn't understand the correlation between behavior and relationships because there's a lot about how we relate to others in in the big book and in the other 12-step programs too it's not just aa um Mm -hmm. and i i did not understand that at first and and then i thought oh well they're just trying to backdoor me into religion here that's what it really sounds like but i wasn't really in a state at that time to completely grasp what this was all about um i just thought it was you you know you're going to teach me to stop drinking, period. That's that's it. There's some secret code that I need <laughs> to stop drinking, and, and when are you going to, guys, guys going to give me the secret code? Um, mm-hmm. But there is no secret code, is there? It's more of like a, a lifestyle, and that, that feeling, and we'll get into this in your book here, where we talk about the spiritual aspect of this. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah. w- w- what were your thoughts when you, when you first came to recovery? Was it similar to mine? Well, um, yes, I mean, it, 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 I went, you know, the 12-step uh, route because that was the most uh, readily accessible. And um, I think it, it's, there's no question that the 12-step-based uh, programs uh, have worked for tens of millions of people. And so my attitude was just trying kind of like, like wildebeest, right, stay in the middle of the pack, and I probably won't get picked off by the lions. And so I tried to do the best I could to do that, and to the extent that I did, I was successful. Um, I looked at the the principles. Uh, the I, I did have a problem with the spiritual aspects. Uh, this idea of a higher power and God. I remember in the '90s, for instance, uh, you know, because in the '90s I was sober, right? But I was still having this, uh, you know, relationship type of addiction going on. 
and I was married, and I kind of viewed, I thought I was just a sociopath because I didn't have the understanding that I have now about, you know, mental health and, and, and addiction. But to the casual observer, my, my behavior was sociopathic. I was doing whatever I wanted to, very narcissistic, you know, doing what I wanted to without regard for the emotional consequences to anybody else. Of course, I also had to lie a lot, right, because I wasn't going to let my shameful behavior um, out. And so that, of course, undermined my self-esteem because you know, self-esteem is all about asserting who we are authentically, having the courage to let the chips fall where they may. But I could never do that because who would want somebody that is so tied up, addicted to their you know, behaviors, pleasurable things? And so I even joined the Promise Keepers in the 90s. I remember, the, you know, the Million Man March and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. I, fi- I figured, well, you know, a higher power, uh, that could, that, that's the ticket. If I just get religion, you know, that'll save me and, and my behavior will change and I'll be lovable again. Yeah. And it um, didn't work. <laughs> worked for a lot of the other guys, you know, because a, a lot of them didn't have addictions, right? They were able to uh, you know, leverage their spiritual beliefs to change their behaviors. And so... I only took, I, I developed a certain amount of contempt because, and, and also that experience in my mind reaffirmed how unworthy of salvation, I guess you could say, that I was. Otherwise, it would have happened. Um, and it didn't do a lot for me in terms of my belief in the powerfulness of a higher power. So either that higher power didn't care or didn't exist or I wasn't worthy or any no- number of other valid conclusions one might come to uh, when faced with a similar situation. And so, you know, when I got into recovery this time around, after my 18-year run, um, I remember actually going into Betty Ford the, the first day, and they gave, I woke, <laughs> when I woke up, um, you know, there was a little goodie bag next to the bed. It had the copy of the big book and the 12 by 12, the 12 uh, traditions uh, and of uh of Alcoholics Twelve Anonymous. steps and twelve traditions. Twelve yeah. steps and twelve traditions. Yeah, and I literally looked at them. I'm like, if this is all you got, then I might as well leave. And I started to leave. And um, I was on my way out. The uh, I'd, I'd packed my stuff, and uh, this guy Jimmy Weiss, who we're we're friends now, uh, he came hustling out. I guess I'm not the only person that ever got to treatment and decided that maybe it wasn't the best idea the first day. Uh, the, his he was a, basically a client retention specialist, and he. Came, he, he came hustling across, it's, I read this in my book, but it's worth repeating. He came hustling across the, uh, you know, the, the green area and said, come on in my office for a minute. And he said, well, what's going on? And I told him, I said, you know, I've been, if I got this you know, big book and this 12 by 12, and if this is the best you got, then you're wasting your time. I'm just going to go back and, and uh, go about my business. And he said, hang on a minute. And he went in the other room, and I heard him talking on the phone. Blah, 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 blah. And he handed me his cell phone, and I, I thought maybe it was my wife or something like that. Um, and I, I put up the phone, and I said, yeah, hello. Hey, man, this is Steven Tyler. Man, what's going on? You know, <laughs> you, know, I, you know, I've been in your spot before. I mean, I was sitting there not too long ago. What was your thing, you know? And I told him, you know, it was coke and drinking and all sorts of stuff. He said, oh, man, you know, that's terrible. But listen, just... Tell you what, your money's not going to be here for a few days instead of taking off. Why don't you just 
why don't you just stick around for a couple of days till you get the resources to, to leave and just do me a favor, man. Just be honest as you can, you know, just say whatever you think, no matter what you think anyone's going to, you know, and, and as a musician, of course, Jimmy knew that I would probably respond to a guy like Steven Tyler, who was one of my, you know, idols, uh, you know, coming up in the, in the day. And I'm like, okay. So I agreed anyway that for three days I'd stick around because I, I had requested some money from my stockbroker. I'd have some stocks liquidated. Uh, it takes three days for the money to clear. And then otherwise I was just going to have to pawn my watch, literally walk into town in Palm Springs, which was my plan, and get a train ticket and live with my girlfriend. Um, that's another story. But uh, so, um, you know, I did it and I was honest. Uh, by, by the way, I guess Stephen had taken that call at 4 a.m. He was in Japan or something touring. Really? And so, wow. Yeah. And, and so, you know, one thing that said, first of all, was that A, Jimmy was smart. B, but, you know, but, but somebody that I, do, I don't even know cared about me and thought I was worth at least taking a few minutes to talk to. Um, but number three, when I did what Stephen said, I was brutally honest to everybody and I, I, I think my plan was to be as honest super honest and negative and say how I felt so that they would say oh yeah this guy sucks let's get up out of here and and none of the staff left they it's they it was a revelation that I could be authentic and still be accepted and so that was a big turning point for me at least um, you know, for sticking around but um, you know as far as the spiritual stuff is concerned um, you know, after I after I got out, I could see that I, intuitively. I could see that people that had some sense of spirituality or devoutness had an easier time of it. I think at staying sober because mm -hmm. I think if you think about it, you know, the uh, addiction itself is it's a stress response, right? And so if you have this set of beliefs that give you the sense that everything's going to be okay, that you know. Um, it, it it's it takes away a lot of fuel for the desire to self-medicate for people and I simply couldn't couldn't do that for any number of again valid reasons and experiences that I had leading up to that point and so I uh, became fascinated with a book about two years ago by a guy Joe Dispenza who spent a lot of time studying placebo effect on people and I thought about you know placebos work because of the belief right that that something is going on that isn't. In other words, it doesn't matter if it truly is or isn't. It's just that we believe that it's going on. And I thought you know there's a big correlation between spirituality, if you will, and this placebo thing. And so I started digging in to uh, you know physics and and the nature of reality and how. Um, because I could relate to science and philosophy and physics because I like those sorts of things. And it turns out that I was, if the more I looked at, at the nature of reality, the more I realized that there's a lot of evidence as we start getting toward the edge of our understanding that maybe there is a plausible argument in favor of some sort of divine intelligence or higher power. And I kind of lay that out in the book. And... Uh, then I put it into practice, the beliefs that would be used to leverage that reality. Um, and it started working, which only just reinforced my faith uh, to the point where I feel pretty confident, at least for myself, that I'm far less skeptical about the notion of adopting a sense of spirituality to the extent that it, it makes sense for me. Well, and I know you run into the same thing that I do in the, in the counseling field, and that is that 
if there's one thing I know that I'm going to run to, if there's going to be a battle, if there's going to be sort of a, a stumbling point, if you will, when people first come into recovery, is that whole notion of spirituality. They come in because mm-hmm. uh, just about all of the programs out there deal with this in one form or another. And it's a stumbling block in the beginning. And I think people confuse religion with spirituality. Um, maybe okay. elaborate on that a little bit. What is the, What would be the difference in, in your mind between the difference between religion and spirituality? Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, one of the things that uh, I've found is, is that uh, hmm, I think, well, religion, I think, sort of seems to have an agenda in my mind. Um, I, I hate to sound cynical, but I, I've I found that it seems like it's people trading on this idea of uh, immortality. Uh, I find it makes me a little bit cynical. And so uh, whether it's, I lived in Utah for a while. I got my undergraduate degree at University of Utah. And uh, I remember having a field day, of course, with that whole whole deal because not you know, in order to participate in the predominant religion, there, you, you you were required to give 10% of your income away. It's it's, mm-hmm. it's almost like tax taxes, right? And for some reason, it it just that uh, it was almost like a conflict of interest, right? It's like yeah, well, this uh, there's all this grace to be had for free, but here take we'll take 10% anyway, right? And and that's somehow my it certainly appealed to my sense of cynicism. Um, you know, people have a lot of different reasons for being skeptical about, um, you know, religion in general. Uh, for instance, uh, when, when we're kids growing up, let's say you went to church, you know, standard uh, Western Christian church, and a lot of people grew up in dysfunctional families. And when you're a kid, your, perception, your self-perception is primarily based on how you perceive that your parents or your caregivers perceive you. And so if they were alcoholic or rageaholics or or workaholics, right? We got this marginalized perspective of ourselves. And then we go to church and we just basically view God as a supersized version of our parents and make the appropriate uh, conclusions on that. You know, if, if I can't even trust my parents to love me, you know, there's a kid, they don't go through this conscious process. It's, it's just unconscious. You know, as a child who's more godlike than our parents, um, and so if, if our parents are, con- you know, their love is conditional, they, we infer that God's love is, is conditional and, or that we're not worthy of it. So we don't even ask. We, we just presume that we're not worthy. If my parents could forsake me, then why wouldn't an all-important God? Mm-hmm. Or a cynic would, would simply infer that if God cared about them, he wouldn't allow dysfunction to occur, whether it's in their parents or themselves. The end, end result is distrust in a higher power. Um, in addiction, with uh, physiologically, with damage to the insular cortex, um, one of the symptoms is, is misplaced distrust of benevolent people and misplaced trust of the untrustworthy. And so people uh, with uh, you know, physiological damage in their certain parts of their brain will naturally distrust a higher power. Uh, they're certainly not going to blindly trust um, you know, a benevolent entity. Uh, shame fosters spiritual skepticism. Um, you know, the fact that we 
feel like we don't deserve it. We've been repressing our true self for so long that we don't even believe we're worthy of human consideration, um, much less divine consideration. Um, so judgment is part of most religions. There's certain uh, behavioral requirements that are necessita- are important for membership. And as people who are, by definition, unable to guarantee their behavior, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like religion would be a good fit. And so there are so many constraints and re- reasons why religion um, is, is not necessarily tenable for somebody that's in early recovery, certainly. Um, it's, it, it, that's why so many people just have a problem with the, the, the second and third step, you know, turning our, our will and our lives over to the care of some higher power that we either don't trust or feel we're worthy of. It's just, that's a big stretch. Yeah. And that that's, I run into that with a lot of people as well. And I've, I've often thought of it as sort of like the horizontal and the vertical, um, the horizontal portion being religion, because the first thing people will say is, you know, I had a bad experience and I was raised in this particular religion and um, I didn't like it or uh, I, I was molested by somebody in that religion or somebody I know was or they ran off with the mm-hmm. money or so-and-so had an affair. And people get really hung up on the people aspect of it, you know, the, the organized yeah. religion, which is made up of people. And in mm-hmm. early recovery, what we try to do is, is not – discuss that and not worry about that, but focus on the relationship between the person and that higher power. Now, the higher power doesn't have to be an entity. It can be the group. It can be um, a family. It can be it can be a lot of things, can't it? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, for, for me, I, I think from the most practical perspective, I've chose the group, you know, as, as a higher power. And there, there's a in my research, I found out that there's actually a clinical benefit to that too, because um, th- that has not. A, it, I should say it helps explain why that makes it possible for people to more uh, uh, plausibly grasp a group as being a higher power as opposed to some invisible being or themselves. Um, you know, the, the anterior cingulate cortex is one of the uh, parts of the brain that's usually affected by addiction. It's responsible for our ability to self-assess and to, uh, you know, connect the dots between our behaviors and our, our the consequences. Um, and so, in a group of people, we're perfectly able to assess other people's decision processes, but our own is impaired. I use the example in the book of going to Key West. You know, I, I, if I were sitting with you and we're new in recovery and I thought of the brilliant idea and said, yeah, I think I'm going to go down to Key West this weekend and watch the sunset on the beach and drink a Diet Coke and watch, uh, you know, people go by. That's a terrible idea for somebody in recovery because Key West is not a sober, friendly destination. No. If you've ever been there and, re- and, re- and remember it, right? Um, yeah. and, and so, and so but hopefully the person on the, sitting across from me who has just as little recovery as I have would be able to say, that's really stupid, Andrew. Why don't you either not do that and we'll hang out here and do something or at least bring your sober posse with you and we can keep each other accountable. Um, you know, it, it, so in, in a group, we're kind of using everybody else's anterior cingulate cortices, if you will, to uh, help us uh, navigate our our. our processes. It, it works. Again, we're perfectly capable of assessing other people, but our ability to self-assess is severely impaired for the first year or two. 
Yeah. Oh no. And, I, I, and so, I so it makes agree. sense to yeah. let the group be a higher power. Yep. Yeah. I, I completely. That's very, very well said. I think that's the, probably the strongest argument I've heard uh, for the group, particularly early on. Now, uh, I've often postulated that later in recovery, um, you will just sort of naturally gravitate towards you know this higher power, this 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 uh, spiritual aspect of recovery. Because, you know, people who get into long-term recovery, and I'm, I am definitely one of those people, you start to look back and you realize, wow, I've, I've got all this time sober now, and so few people actually get to that point. I mean, when you think about it, uh, it it's more likely that people are not going to get into long-term recovery than are going to get into long-term recovery. And you think, well, how is it that I made it this far and others didn't? And I know for me, it was undoubtedly um, the spiritual aspect. I really started to dig into that. And people that have long-term recovery um, explore that. Now, it's not all one path, and it's not all religion. It's like Everybody has sort of their own uh, thoughts behind what their spiritual life is, but there's no question. Mm-hmm. What nearly all of them have in common is they developed that spiritual side of their life, whatever that means to them. Is that what you've mm-hmm. seen as well? Um, yes, I, I I think that's true, and there's there are a couple of things there. First of all, yeah, I think the longevity is certainly helped by uh, you know adopting a spiritual perspective of some sort, but even more importantly, I think uh, the depth and quality of recovery is greatly enhanced if you look at the promises and um, you know I would look at the twelve promises of AA and and I could see that they were all kind of happening to varying degrees. But when I find when when it finally kind of clicked and I, I was able to develop, I would say the the more uh, spiritual perspective I was able to internalize and develop, that it was to that degree that I was able to experience greater depth of uh, the the twelve promises coming into fruition. Uh, and it's when those promises come into fruition uh, that that is really going to dictate, I think, the uh, the, the, the prospects for, for longevity mm. uh, and a quality of recovery where we're actually happy being sober, not just, you know, not just skidding by, um, by the skin of our teeth, but that we actually have some real depth to our recovery process. That's right. Now that's going to lead me into, have a couple more questions for you, if you don't mind. But before we get to them, I just want to uh, remind everybody again that this episode is sponsored by FHE Health, and FHE Health has been providing life-changing behavioral health services for more than 20 years. They treat substance abuse and mental health disorders in an individualized and comprehensive approach. Recognizing the specialized treatment needs of the first responder community, they've created Shatterproof, a dedicated program for law enforcement, fire rescue, and similar communities to receive treatment among peers. They're experienced in providing privacy and working with unions for employment. FHE Health is committed to providing the best care experience for our patients, for their families, and for our community. So learn more at FHEHealth.com. So, um, Andrew, when you're in, you've got your own practice going on now, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. What I do. What would you say is the biggest obstacle? to getting people into recovery from your your perspective. You know, I talked about, you know, in my experience, not being in private practice, but just sponsoring people and uh, through internships and just, you know, you know people I've worked with. Um, I, to me, it is understanding the true disease nature of addiction. That's, that's one. And then the other thing is this idea of getting past the higher power question 
And then people starting to think that recovery groups are a cult and they don't want to be part of a cult. That's kind of what I've seen. But, but what about you? What have, what have you seen with patients coming in? Mm-hmm. Well, I see that, uh, first of all, I think stigma is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, They'll come in if they're externally motivated to come in. Oh, my wife told me to come in or my work did or their, the court or something refers them. You know, that, those are usually the most challenging situations because on some level, they, you know, nobody, wake for, nobody wakes up one day and says, oh, I think I'm going to go to treatment today. You know, it, it just doesn't happen, right? Something, mm-hmm. uh, you, some, there's some sort of precipitating event that led to their being there. Um, but uh, one of the biggest obstacles, you know, I'll do an assessment with somebody and I'll tell them you know, what I think. And then they will, one of two things will happen. They'll say thanks and I'll never see them again. Um, or, or, or they'll say thanks, I'll never see them again until about six months later when they've gone through more of the same stuff that I told them they were probably going to experience. And they realize that, okay, maybe there's some there there. And you know, they've tried to do, what, um, you know, do things their own way. But you know, when, we're, when our apparatus for self-assessment is corrupted and, and we can only we only know what we know and so uh, but stigma is one of the things um, a sense that they want to that they can control this now that they know what's going on oh well now that I know it's a disease then I can control my drinking and so they have more research to do shall we say um, before they come to the conclusion that they in fact are powerless over the uh, you know, their ability to guarantee their behavior mm. Yeah, very, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And the idea that because the, this idea of stick the the stigma prevents people oftentimes from doing the things that they need to do in aftercare, and that's namely stay involved in some sort of a, a program in aftercare. And then it's you know particularly if you're a small community, you think okay, well I I can't oh, yeah. go to meetings because I'm gonna know people that are there. I, I know that's a big issue now. I live in a very well, large yeah, like, metropolitan like, well, going, area. Going to a meeting, they're also de facto admitting that they're one of those people, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and, and when it comes to you know who who am I going to see there, I always jokingly say, well, isn't that kind of like running into your priest at the strip club? I mean, neither one of you is going to say anything. Exactly. And and I've often said to people, um, well, if there has it occurred to you that if they're at a meeting that you're at, they're likely there for the same reason that you're there. So mm-hmm. um, not. A, and by the way, that's happened to me. I don't know if that's ever happened oh, to yeah. you, but that has happened to me. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, when that realization, wait a minute, I didn't you know, it's not like I was, you know, intending to go to the garden section of Walmart and took a wrong turn and ended up in an AA meeting. That's not how it works. Um, mm-hmm. we, we were both there for a particular reason. Um, so the book, what was the motivation behind you wanting to do the book? Because that's a bit, very big undertaking. And, and so what was your thought process behind this? What motivated you to want to write a book and, and take on that sort of a commitment? Well, um, the first thing, I guess, that, that got me going was this, this book started out as something else, and, and then it became its own thing. Uh, um, I had read a book by a guy named Joe Dispenza called Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself. And he was the one that um, talked about this placebo idea, right? And he he lays it out pretty well. And um, I thought, wow, these are great ideas. I I wonder if if I could adapt this material to addiction because most self-help books 
don't take into account the addictive personality and the tremendous amount of shame-based personality that comes with that. They, they can't even envision what a reality would look like where they're overriding emotion from the time they wake up in the morning to the time they go to sleep is gratitude. I mean, it's impossible for somebody that's been afflicted with addiction to imagine that. And so I wrote my book initially intended to be sort of like breaking the habit of being yourself, but for folks with addiction, or at least to get folks with addiction up to speed so that when they read his book, that they would be able to hit the ground running. So it it's, was going to fill a gap. Then I started doing the research that, uh, you know, about quantum field theory and, and that sort of stuff, um, which his book is based on and, or the basis for his, his change model. And again, I adapted that to, uh, to put it in the context of addiction, because if you think about it, addiction, going from addiction from a, a, an addict to an, I guess, less of an addict or somebody that's not using is a change. It's, it's a, and so I ultimately ended up basically turning his change model into an addiction change model to the extent that uh, the entire book outlines that. And then if a person does goes through my book, they'll understand that next step and they'll be able to move on to uh, uh, more, uh, I guess, conventional changes, uh, things other going other, you know, if his, his change model was based on um, changing folks with physiological ailments. He could literally use beliefs uh, based on reality, how, how the nature of reality is, to make physiological changes, to cure neurological diseases, uh, to repair spinal stuff, and it had been proven to work. I thought, well, I don't need to change, you know, repair anyone's spine so they can walk. I just need to change somebody so that, you know, get them to believe in the possibility that they can change, first of all, right, because that's one of the biggest challenges I have, um, you know, is people that have been afflicted by addiction don't even believe that they could quit. And so um, using a field-based change model, which is, I guess, what I coined uh, my change model, um, it, 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 it overcomes spiritual skepticism. It overcomes people's uh, learned helplessness, if you will. And it also, it, it also overcomes the contempt for spirituality that people have by taking a science-based approach using more of an Eastern philosophy where there aren't any conditions for uh, engagement in the spiritual uh, community. And so it, it really overcomes three of the most challenging uh, problems that people in addiction or therapists of people in addiction are going to encounter. So it's a great resource not only for end users that are trying to change themselves or to understand about how addiction works uh, for loved ones, but it also is great for clinicians uh, who want to use the model and the principles presented in the book to facilitate their clients' ability to believe, change their beliefs, right? Placebo th uh, theory change their beliefs about themselves, what they're truly capable of. And this book does a really great job at that. Yeah, and I would actually add one more thing in there. You said that um, a lot of addicts aren't sure whether they can change, but I mm -hmm. think it even begins prior to that, and that is you truly need to want to change. And, and when I say you want to change, I mean 
you want to change. Not not want to change because I'm or tired of the court else, being yeah. on me or my wife is on my back, my husband's on my back. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I want my kids back. I want my job back. That can't be the motivation, can it? It has to be something deep down internally. Well, they have to be internally motivated. And, and the way that I do that is I kill two birds with one stone. Um, I, I use a, a technique which is outlined in the book called the magic wand thought experiment. And I will tell the client who's sitting across from me in so many words, here's a magic wand, right? And I want you to write an essay basically um, describing a perfect world in which your reality is such that, as I mentioned earlier, when you wake up in the morning from the time you wake up to the time you go to sleep, the overwhelming emotion aside with your your day and your week and any given month is, is unbridled gratitude. And they look at me kind of quizzically, and I repeat it. And then next week, they come back with this two-paragraph terrible <laughs> uh, effort at that. But what it points out, and, and, and you know, the response is, well, what happened? Did you not understand the assignment? Yeah. Um, well, I wanted to be realistic. Right, and and that's that's the point. And and if you think about it, right, you know Richard Branson, right? It, the 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 difference between you and me, or Richard Branson, or anybody, is literally what we believe we're capable of. Because if we have certain beliefs about ourselves, unquestioned beliefs, that's going to define what we're willing to do and 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 what what our possible behaviors are going to be like. If we truly believe that we can't become somebody that doesn't have substances in their life, then that's probably not going to happen. And so the magic wand thought experiment, uh, in addition to revealing pathology and clients about what their limiting beliefs are, uh, we, it gives us fertile ground for exploring why they believe that way. And the, you know, we can talk about all sorts of things. But in the end, we keep at it because if we have this filled out vision for what it feels like to be that person that that wakes up in the morning and they're just happy and excited about the day and they're doing things that are meaningful to them whatever those things are we define what those are all of a sudden we have this bright beacon to plant on the horizon now we have a place to go right we have a a direction to walk in if we don't have that if we don't have a vision for what we want, how are we going to be excited about leaving substances? And so, you know, this exercise sets the stage for the therapy moving forward for quite a while. We have to decide what kind of values that that kind of person would have to have in order to live that reality. And then we add the spiritual aspect, which is what part two of the book is about, how that, how how the universe works, if you will, and how we, when we have a congruent vision for what we truly want and our heads and our hearts are aligned, the universe does sort of start doing things for us that we can't do for ourselves. And it's, it gets a little bit weird at that point. And uh, I can't explain it, but to the extent that we're able to meditate on what we truly want, what that vision is, it's like putting out a radio signal into the universe and we start See, little synchronicities start showing up in our lives and uh, life becomes kind of effortless. Well, you know, what's funny is that most of the people in long-term recovery that I know uh, have, maybe they don't articulate it the way that you just did, but they have, uh, they, they understand that that happens. They understand that by just showing up, doing the right thing, um, staying sober, always helping other people, 
being grateful for the things that they have, the recovery that they have, and the blessings. And I've had people in my world really express gratitude, even in the midst of horrific things happening in their lives, but still maintaining a sense of serenity. And, mm-hmm. you know, you see it. Like, I, I often tell new people that, that I work with in recovery that when you look at someone and I ask them, you know, t- tell me, you know, is that person just not drinking or drugging or are they sober? Because there is a difference. And they'll say, well, how do you know? How do you know if somebody's sober as opposed to just not using? And I'll say, you'll know it. When somebody is truly sober, which is a state of being, you know it. And I think that oftentimes they are um, reflecting a lot of the, of the principles that you're talking about. And that's how you know it. It's just intuitive. Mm-hmm. I think there's a certain authenticity, which is one of the important parts of uh, recovery. There, there's uh, you know, one of the things, one of the arguments, I guess, that I make to help people understand that they, how important it is for them to regain, recover their authenticity, their true self, their inner child, whatever you want to call it, before they started to repress themselves at age two or three in order to maintain attachment to their parents. Right. That's when they started losing themselves. And if they became people pleasers as a result of that, which probably 80 percent of my clientele is, um, you know, they get to the point where and I I said this myself and I meant it at the time. But it is funny when I die, everyone else's life is going to flash before my eyes, you know, and we become so caught up in being what everybody else thinks that the, the number one, one of the elements of happiness is recovering our true self. What do I want? You know, and that goes to that internal motivation you were speaking of. Nobody, people don't have a big, a good chance of long-term recovery if they're doing it for somebody else. Part of this vision that I try to get people to describe in great detail is about what, who are they and what do they truly want? And if they don't know who they are, how, how do they even know what they want? That's one of the things that we have to overcome. Um, And, one of the best quotes I heard from somebody on authenticity was the lady who, uh, Carolyn McHugh, who studied a, a, a lot of famous people, and she said, you know, uh, all the outstanding people in the the most outstanding people in the world have one thing in common, nothing. Right, and so, <laughs> That's and and, and yeah. so, in other words, we all there's like a, a U-sized hole in the universe that only you can fill, and. You can't fill it being somebody else, and you're surely never going to be happy being somebody other than who you are supposed to be. And, um, you know, inauthenticity and dishonesty about who we are has become become so ingrained in our system because of social media, the need for external validation, and our own shame. You know, we don't want to – we're afraid to assert our true self because if we're rejected, it'll reaffirm what we already unconsciously believe to be true about ourselves, which is that we're not lovable, and that's just false. And so a lot of my early work with clients is practicing being authentic and having the experience of not being judged and rejected, which is quite a revelation to them because they've had to lie for so long in mm-hmm. their mind. So ACA meetings are a great format for that. Yeah, and, and well, for the audience, explain what an ACA meeting is. Uh, well, the, it's short for adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people that are uh, candidates for ACA are people that are self-described people pleasers. Um, they learned a long time ago that being their authentic self in childhood uh, in, in their family of origin was not acceptable. Um, 
And uh, in chapter one of the book, I talk about the correlation between ADD and addiction. Um, you know, physiologically speaking, ADD is uh, results, the uh, symptomatic behaviors are a direct result of a shortage of dopamine D2 activity in the brain. Um, and so, you know, we, we, novel, we do novelty seeking, risk taking behaviors, things like that. And of course, as a kid, if you have childhood ADD and your parents' mantra was children are to be seen and not heard, you can imagine that the kind of feedback that you're going to get through childhood, as long as it's not treated, is going to be pretty negative. And so that first time that you take a hit of your pot or a drink, the tremendous contrast between your, 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 your baseline stress level and the relief that substance provides is going to be profound. And it's really going to set the stage for uh, uh, you know, vulnerability to substance use issues moving forward. So, and not surprisingly, or perhaps surprisingly, uh, you know, also addiction, uh, the, the physiological basis for addiction is a shortage paucity of dopamine D2 activity in the brain, right? So 75 to 80% of my clients have either diagnosed or undiagnosed ADD, uh, which, so there is a strong correlation between those two. Wow. <laughs> Interesting stuff. Yeah, that yeah. sounds like a fascinating so they, book. And the, and the inauthenticity is all part of that. And so the book talks about how to overcome that. And uh, uh, the, the, the argument in favor of adopting spirituality goes way beyond just the addiction stuff, but because once you start to learn about the nature of reality and and how we can actually move toward this idealized future version of ourselves much quick, much more quickly than we ever imagined and become a lot happier along the way, I mean, we're it's really helping with recovery. And so that's what the book is all about. Wow. That's, that's really fascinating stuff. I can't wait to get a hold of this thing and, and read it. And I, I hope that <laughs> hope our listeners do too. And let's see if I can get it right this time. Let's see if I can tell you the title of this book without screwing it up this time. Resolving it's, spiritual skepticism in reality in the subtitle is recovery. Putting, um, putting up. What's that? Resolving spiritual skepticism in recovery. Mm hmm. And then putting the, putting universe, the universe to work for you. Work for you. Yeah. yeah, that is that is fantastic. Now, how would the listeners get hold of you? Um, you, you have a, a website, and uh, well, yeah, they can they can they can um, you know access me um, and and the uh, the book through my website. It's uh, quite simple. It's my name, andrewgpierce.com. Andrewgpierce.com. Um, I can I. We fulfill the uh, book orders from the publisher that way, or people can get the book uh, at Amazon or really any bookstore. If you ask for it by name, you can order it. Um, there's a Kindle version that's downloadable from Amazon. If folks are doing the Barnes & Noble Nook thing, they can download it there. Um, it's, it's, it's just a, fast, it's a fantastic book. I the feedback that I've gotten from it, it's all five stars so far on Amazon. Uh, the profound uh, insights that people are are gaining from it are really humbling. I, it, it really makes me feel good when people uh, give the feedback on, on how it's affected them personally. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful book. I love it. And I would definitely, this subject matter, folks, if you're listening to this podcast and you're struggling with uh, the spiritual aspect of recovery, please get hold of this book and read it because I, you know, I, I got to tell you, Andrew, this has been a fascinating discussion for me. I've learned a lot from what you've told me here today. And so this is really, really good stuff. 
And so I hope the listeners will get a copy of this book. So, Andrew, take us out. Um, let us. Get, what? How about just one departing thought? Um, it, what do you want? To, what do you want our listeners to take away from um, your talk today with us? There's one just kind of key takeaway. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. Well, I would say that um, you know spirituality is really a necessary aspect of a good quality of recovery and that there are ways to adopt a sense of spirituality that are going to, uh, that my book outlines, that is going to make it, it's just going to change your life and the depth of your recovery by leaps and bounds in the four or five hours it takes to read it. Um, You know, there are, there's, there are links uh, in the book. There's a, a, a media vault that I forgot to mention that's on the website. The address is in the book with 40 uh, different video, videos ranging from TED Talks to uh, uh, a series uh, that are, are accessible uh, that correspond to each chapter. So not only is the book in itself uh, you know, a self-contained book, but there is supplemental uh, media documentaries, videos, and things that you're referred to in the book to really increase your understanding of that. But if you're skeptical about spirituality and recovery, you are not alone. And this book helps to create a very plausible and palatable um, solution to those of us who intuitively know that spirituality is going to be beneficial to uh, long-term, a quality long-term recovery and happiness in general. Yeah, well, fantastic. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, and I, I look forward to having you back again if you'd, if you'd be willing to come back. Oh, thanks, Mike. I'm happy to come back anytime. I'm easy to reach. Oh, wow. Well, folks, um, thanks, thanks again, Andrew, and this episode has been sponsored by FHE Health, and according to SAMHSA, first responders are 30% more likely to develop behavioral health conditions like PTSD. FHE Health specializes in getting first responders better and cleared for duty. So find out more at FHEHealth.com. And folks, please, once again, reach out, get that book, uh, take a look at it. Uh, either go to his website or uh, go to Amazon and check out the book, Resolving Spiritual Skepticism in Recovery and Putting the Universe to Work for You. Because that uh, it's a fascinating book, and I'm going to be checking it out here real real soon. And folks, you know, so as always, I'd, I'd like to say I don't represent any group. I do know that we talk about groups, so we've talked about several groups here tonight, but I don't and Andrew don't represent any of these groups. We're just, we're talking about them because these are things that have worked for us and, you know, maybe they'll work for you as well. So um, if I've said anything or if Andrew said anything that doesn't apply to you or you don't agree with, then just discard it. But try to take information you can use for yourself and try to help others as well because that's what we do in recovery. We help ourselves along the way and we help to impart the knowledge we've gained to others as well. So with that, please visit our Facebook page, which is Recovery is Possible, and our website, vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. And let me know how I'm doing and let me know if there's a topic that you're interested in hearing about because we do uh, episodes on questions or answer questions that you guys have, uh, you know, answer those questions from the audience because, you know, I'd love to hear from you guys. So take care and we'll talk with you next time.